Welcome back to another edition of The Alonzo Bet. We're your hosts. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. And we're coming to you with a brand new and super exciting episode today. So for those of you who are just joining us for the first time, in the last episode, we wrapped up our division and season previews, making award predictions with Jake Mintz of Cespedes Family Barbecue and Sam. That was one of the most fun guests that we've ever talked to. Yeah, it was uh, actually our first guest ever, but it was a great first guest. We had a ton of fun talking about baseball with Jake. He was so great to come on the show. We had a blast having him, and we're you know we're really excited about having our first guest on the show. And we definitely plan on having a lot more guests for you guys in the future because we think you know we don't only enjoy talking about baseball with each other. We enjoy talking about baseball with really anyone who's interested. Exactly. And so we hope to bring a wealth of different experiences and uh, takes on baseball to you guys in hopefully a fun and exciting way. So stay tuned for all of that. But today we are changing gears over from a season preview. We're going to talk a little news. There's uh, actually some serious news coming out of the baseball world recently. That's right. Two very exciting stories we're going to have for you. One, we're going to talk about a possible plan to restart the season, but there would be some divisional realignment, and we'll talk about that. And then second, it's uh, opening day of the Korean baseball organization. So, you know, there's no Major League Baseball for us right now, but there is now some professional baseball for us to be watching. And, you know, any baseball fan out there should be rejoicing because, you know, even if your favorite team or players aren't playing now, there's still some really good, high-quality baseball yeah. to watch now. Some fun baseball to watch. So after we finish up with the news, we're going to get into our stack corner. We got win probability added for you today, so stay tuned for that. And then we're going to round it out with a fun little activity inspired by MLB.com series, Building the Perfect Five-Tool Player. So stay tuned for that. But before we do all of that, Sam, let's get into the news. So we already just alluded to it. But there is a report out by Bob Nightingale of USA Today describing a possible plan to reopen the MLB by July 2nd latest, they say. Yeah, and, you know, that would be wonderful, provided, of course, that this is something that they could do safely and right. we wouldn't be putting anyone's lives at risk. But if this is a real possibility, this would be a really exciting development. And let's actually get into some of the details of the plan. So... This wouldn't just be a normal Major League Baseball season. There would be some big changes made. The first major change they're talking about is getting rid of the American and National League and instead basically just having three divisions, an Eastern Division, a Central Division, and a West Division. And what these divisions are are basically just a merging of those divisions from the American League and National League, except there's one swap that goes on. The Pittsburgh Pirates would end up in the East Division, and the Atlanta Braves would end up in the Central Division. So... For the other teams in the East Division, a very welcome trade. Mm -hmm. uh, so as a Mets fan, that's a trade I'd, I'd be all about. Uh, if you're in the Central Division, that's a trade you're much less happy exactly. about. And the reason you're really going to care about which teams end up in your division is to minimize travel under this plan. You would only play other teams in your division. So your entire schedule would be against the other teams in your division. So that's important to remember is that this entire proposal is to find a way to play this season safely. And originally we had discussed a proposal to play all of the games in both the Grapefruit and Cactus Spring training facilities so that teams and players did not have to travel anywhere. Well, that got major pushback from the players who were like, we don't want to play the whole season away from our family. We have lives and we're humans. We need to be treated as such. 
And so the MLB and the owners kind of kept thinking, and this is their most recent proposal. Now, there's still a lot of questions around this, Sam. This is by no means a done deal. And one of the big questions is, it's not just about how do the players travel and how do we keep everybody safe, but it's also about are people going to be allowed in the stands, right? Are there going to be fans at these games? And how many games are we going to play? Are we going to use the same rules? There's so many open-ended questions right now. And I think that one of the most interesting of those is how are players and teams supposed to work out contracts when the contract is signed with the assumption that the team is making all sorts of concession sales and gate sales for tickets at games and all that, um, but from the players' perspectives, a contract is a contract. There's no clause in their contracts if COVID-19 strikes, you get a pay cut. So uh, we've seen some reports, and my feeling is this is going to be a really difficult problem to resolve. Yeah, I think there have been a few owners that have actually come out and said, we're not going to support having a season if the players don't meet us halfway and take on some of the pay cut because you know we know that in any shortened season, the owners are going to be taking a big hit to their revenue you know, in this proposed plan right now, the stadiums would start out as empty until it was deemed right. sort of safe to have fans coming in. Uh, so, yeah, th I think this is going to be a, a big issue for teams. But really, I think if you're the players, if you're the owners, you should be working under the joint assumption that some baseball is better than no baseball. Right. And they, you know, if you don't have a season, you're going to take an even bigger loss and, and lose even more money. So, right. you know, I think both parties are going to be motivated to sort of come to an agreement and get some baseball happening. And if it really is by July 1st or July 2nd, which, you know, some people have reported is, is possible, then that would, that would be really amazing. Uh, that, that would require, I think, starting in a, sort of a second spring training in maybe early to mid-June. That's to, right. I, so the players could ramp up for a season. I think what this plan says is that there'd be 18 to 21 days after the players return to spring training before the season starts. And they players would have seven days to return to spring training when the announcement's made. So we're looking at whenever this becomes official, we're looking at about a month until the season starts. So essentially, if this is to become official, we should expect to hear about it around the beginning of June. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they would... They're, they they need the time to for the players to get ready for the season. So you're you're not going to hear about opening day two days before right. it happens. Yeah. Um. But in the meantime, Sam, the other big piece of news out of baseball in the last couple of days was that ESPN has signed a contract with the KBO. That's the Korea Baseball Organization to air six games of Korean baseball a week because they are starting their season. The season started today with an absolute cracker between the NC Dinos and the Samsung Lions. Yeah, that was the game broadcast on, on ESPN. You know, there and for all of you people who are still keeping a normal sleep schedule during uh, <laughs> during your pandemic, the games do start pretty late in uh, you know, if you're on the East Coast, we're talking about one to two AM start times. But luckily for you, ESPN wants to keep you on your sleep schedule, so they're gonna be replaying the games in the afternoon every day. So if you want to be able to watch Korean baseball on television, you will be able to, you know, unless you're busy at 3 p.m. Exactly. And since I know none of you are going to be able to see this game since the last rerun is uh, tomorrow morning, uh, which would be Wednesday, May 6th at 2.30 a.m., 
the Dinos were able to eke this one out, pushing two across in the fourth and two across in the sixth for a big win against the Lions. But here's the thing, Sam. What does that mean to us? Like, why are we excited about this? How do we as baseball fans go and engage with this new, it's really an opportunity for us to fill this void that we have with yeah. something that's a little unusual. How do we grasp it? How do we do that? Yeah, that, that's right. And, you know, for me, there are really two parts about being a baseball fan. One is an appreciation for the actual game of baseball, mm-hmm. you know, getting getting the little things done as a hitter, understanding, you know, what makes a good hitter, just liking, you know, watching the actual game of baseball. Then there's, you know, and I love baseball. I love watching baseball games. And because of that, I'm really excited to watch the Korean Baseball League. But I think there's a second part, which is an equal, if not maybe even bigger part of being a baseball fan for a lot of people, which is their attachment to their favorite teams and players. Mm-hmm. And that's what really is like brings the emotional part of sports. Like that's why people love sports so much because right. they they grow these deep emotional attachments to teams. And you know, I think it, it might be hard for some people to get into the KBO because they don't know most of these players. They've never heard of any of these teams, but, you know, I think this is a great opportunity to enjoy the game of baseball, and maybe if you want to get make the watching more more enjoyable, pick a favorite KBO team. Right. Maybe, you'll, maybe you'll become a fan of that team in the future, you know? And so, there's only 10 teams in the KBO, yeah. and ESPN right now actually has this really interesting um, article up that's power rankings and storylines, and we're not going to go through all of them because it's kind of just overwhelming to hear everything. But a couple just to highlight, just to give you a taste of like, yes, you know, if you're a massive Mets fan, for example, or if you love the Dodgers or the Yankees or whatever it is, if you love the Orioles or the Padres, right, you can find some fun similarities to get behind in the KBO League. And that's definitely what we're going to do. So just a couple lines that caught my eyes. The Doosan Bears, who we just described a second ago, they come from the capital. So they're kind of this like big city team and they're the defending champs. However... They lost the MVP last year, who was Josh Lindblom, to the Brewers. He signed a $9 million three-year contract after pitching an absolute gem last year. He had a 2-5 ERA and an over 6.5 strikeout-to-walk rate. That's, uh, that's pretty good. That's you see why he won the MVP. Pretty good. Um, and a couple other ones. The Hanwha Eagles, uh, they say, are kind of like the Cubs. So they have a very passionate fan base. They always stay to watch the games, but they just keep losing. Um, Apparently, they have some aging veterans and inexperienced young players, so we'll see what that's like. Um, And then the only other one I think that kind of caught my attention right off the bat were the Kia Tigers. Um, and apparently they're the New York Yankees. They spend, they have the most, uh, they have the most titles 11 in, right. since the KBO so started. If, if you are looking for a KBO team to hate, it is the Kia Tigers. It's gotta be the Kia Tigers. Um, and isn't it kind of funny, Sam, that most of these teams, their first name is not like the city they're from, but it's the company that sponsors yeah, them. It's pretty interesting. It's sort of, well, I guess even in, in, in soccer, it's, it's the city, but the sort of the corporate partnerships remind mm-hmm. me a bit more of like of you know soccer European soccer leagues, um, and and for those of you who are wondering what should I expect out of a KBO game, like what actual level of baseball is this? So you know Aaron just mentioned the the MVP of last season just signed a three year nine million dollar contract with the Brewers, so this is a pretty high level of baseball. You know people in this league have played in the majors before, may end up playing in the majors in the future, but if you're sort of trying to understand it from a perspective you get, 
what's generally understood by scouts, and uh, Kyle Glazer, a writer at Baseball America, uh, had a tweet about this that I found was very helpful, is that the KBO is basically between AA and AAA. So if you're looking for the general level of play, it's at that level. Now, it, as a comparison, the Japanese Baseball League uh, the uh, is sort of between AAA and the major leagues. Mm-hmm. So so that's a, at, at a higher level than the Korean Baseball League. I think the Taiwanese Baseball League is sort of seen as below low and high A. So that's a much lower level. But, you know... A lot of people who, you know, go between double A and triple A end up playing in the majors. Right. Like these are really good baseball players and you're gonna you're gonna have a great time watching these games. And another really fun part about the Korean Baseball League is they don't have some of like the stuck up old timey rules of major league baseball where you know you can't bat flip can't bat flip, you can't have fun. I mean these guys are bat flipping on like singles the other way. Yeah, like, these guys do crazy yeah. stuff. They do crazy bat flips, they'll backflip at home plate, they'll try and jump to catcher. Like this is definitely even if the skill level's a little lower than the bigs, this is definitely gonna be a really fun set of games to watch, I think. I, I think I saw a tweet that was like the the KBO is like the NBA street version of NLB, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. Um, so to just kind of piggyback on what Sam's saying and give you an idea of the type of players that have come through the KBO, as we mentioned, Josh Lindblom, who used to be a top Brewers prospect, uh, or a top Dodgers prospect, I'm sorry, but is now a Brewer. He was the uh, MVP last year. You also have uh, just some super random guys like Aaron Brooks and Preston Tucker were signed to play this year. Matt Williams is managing the Kia Tigers. Jung Ho Kang and Byung Ho Park came through here. Um, and so there's a decent amount of uh, talent. A lot of guys who used to be top prospects but just could never find a way to reach that dominant level um, come in this league. An example is Casey Kelly, who was a first-round pick, who was part of the Adrian Gonzalez trade many years ago. Hey, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't like Eric Eric Timms spend a couple of years yep. in, in a KBO, but like sort of before he had that huge comeback season with the Brewers? Eric Timms was on the Dinos from 2014 to 2016, yeah, okay, yeah. and in that span, Sam, listen to his stats. The dude hit 381 with a 790 OPS. 47 bombs, 140 ribs, 40 stolen bases, and that was just 2016. It must have been 790 slugging, right? 790 Sorry. base wouldn't be that high. Yeah, 790 yeah. slugging. Which, that, that is insane. Well, his on base was 503. Oh my god. So, so he was basically very bombs. Yeah, in, that in was just though. 2016, so he absolutely raked. So yeah, there's some super fun stuff happening here. It's kind of a place that some guys go this in the Japanese league when they're trying to revive. And... I think this will be really fun. Again, it's not ideal. I'm not going to try and lie and say that I would prefer to watch KBO games over MLB games, but it's pretty good. Yeah, we got to be thankful. Yeah, and some baseball is better than no baseball. Absolutely. And, that, and that's going to be true with the MLB season, but it's also true in the time frame where I just want to watch baseball games. Exactly. And that's what the KBO is there for. And you now you know we love stats on this podcast, and you may be wondering, as I watch these KBO games, let's say I want to know a player's stats. How can I do that? And we looked this up last night. If you want a good collection of KBO stats, go to mykbostats.com. So it sounds not legit, but it is legit. Yeah, okay. it, it has a great collection of, of KBO stats. So, yeah. If and if you read Korean, they do have some Korean versions. Okay, so you can read it straight from the source. Um, but they do have a good collection. You're not going to see the same type of advanced statistics necessarily yeah. in KBO. And that's something um, I think that's worth mentioning to our fans who may enjoy advanced statistics is that 
the KBO as a league hasn't really embraced advanced analytics yet. I mean, maybe a couple teams like the Bears are starting to get there, but really, by and large, they're not shifting. They're not prioritizing the type of things that MLB teams are, and they're still playing a little bit more traditional style of baseball. Um, so that may be interesting, kind of like being in a time portal if it's really uh, like that when we yeah. start watching. Um, but for that reason, you won't see these advanced stats that we talk about on the show that much on my KBO. But you will see the basics, and hopefully, after listening to us long enough, you'll be able to turn that into an appreciation for what a player's actually. Yeah, and, and you know, maybe uh, one one of these listeners that that really wants to know the advanced stats of the KBO, start calculating them se- you them go, yourselves. Yeah. You know, all the data is there for you to take and. Uh, you, you can create the first, you know, KBO, you know, fan graphs. Right. Uh, be careful. You might end up as a GM in the league before too long. Um, okay, so that's great. I'm really happy that we were able to come on this episode and talk about some fun, exciting news that's great for all of baseball. Now let's go into one of our favorite sections, the stat corner. And today we're going through win probability added. Why don't you break this down for us, Sam? Yeah, so this one is really, you know, pretty simple, but... All the stats, you know, and this is a big philosophy of a lot of advanced stats in the game today. All the stats we've sort of talked about so far are mostly context independent. And what I mean about that is they're sort of independent of your teammates, you know, whether you drove in a run or not, sort of the situation around you. They basically said, what what have you done and the chances you've gotten? And I think context independent evaluation is sort of an important way of evaluating players when you want to really get to the the nitty gritty of like how good that player is, uh-huh. like you know they can't control the context around them. So really, if you want a stat that talks about how good they are as an individual player, what you want to look at is context independent stats. But you know, if you want to know what happened in a season, right? You know how valuable a guy was in a given season. You might want some stats that are context dependent. Like, hey, I want to know if he got a big hit in the bottom of the ninth, down one with runners on second and third. Right. Like, yeah, maybe that's not a dem- demonstrable scale in the long run, but that's still an important measure of what happened that season. So, like, Matt Olson, for example, is fifth on the list of WPA last year. But guys like Freddie Freeman, Anthony Rizzo, Bryce Harper, Ronald Acuna, and Alex Bregman are all below him. I wouldn't take Matt Olson over any of those guys next year, but it actually might say that Matt Olson added a little bit more to the over, just more wins to his team just last year, maybe, than yeah, those other guys. Just within the given context of the plays he made. And I guess before we keep talking about it, let's actually explain what win probability, probability added is. And basically, what it is is, you know, there's tons of data of games in the past where. In any given game situation, you can predict the probability of a team winning. So you might say, if the home team is up one run in the bottom of the eighth with two outs, they have like a 95% chance of winning. And Sam, really quickly, where do they get that number from? How do they just say, if this is the situation, then that's your chance? There have just been so many baseball games over the last 100 years that that situation has happened X times, and they can literally look, what was the probability you won in that situation? Mm -hmm. Um, so pretty simple. Yeah, it's it's really not not that complicated, and all win probability added does is it basically says what was your team's probability of winning before you're at bat, and then what was your team's probability of winning after you're at bat, and if it went up, then you you get that probability added to your to your WPA. If it went down, you get that subtracted. 
So this, uh, a couple things here. One is just to give you a concrete example to illustrate what Sam's saying. If your team, if you come up to the plate in the eighth inning and you guys are up three runs and let's say you have an eight, nobody on and you have an 85% chance of winning. If you homer and you go up four runs and your team's chance of winning goes to 90%, you've added... 0.05 WPA, I'm sorry. That's right. Which is 5% in just a decimal form. And then they just add this up through the whole season. Conversely, if you go up and strike out with the bases loaded and your team up by two and your win probability goes down by 5% for the team, then you lose 0.05%. And another super interesting thing about WPA, Sam, is that it's, I think, one of the only and definitely the first statistic that we've looked at where... The statistic is assessed to two people at once. So right. for each individual at bat that I just described, when the player homers, he gains 0.05 WPA. But the pitcher loses exactly that much. That's right. And for that reason, WPA can be a little tricky because relievers, for example, come into games in super high leverage situations. A, a mop-up guy or a, or a mid-range starter who only pitches the beginning of games, they're not really in positions that drastically alter their team's chance of winning as much as a reliever. That's right. And since relieve, since like the top relievers are often in the most high-leverage situations, uh, you might see that you know a, the best reliever in a given season, his win probability added, might actually match the best starting pitcher for that right. season. Whereas, if And in look, fact, last year, sorry, Sam, the top reliever was Will Smith. He had a higher WPA than the top starter, who was Justin Verlander. Yeah, so, so win probability added can really recognize the value of like a really shutdown closer in a given season. Whereas if you look at a more context-neutral stat like war, the top starter is always going to have a much, much higher war than the top reliever. You know, the top reliever wouldn't even match the top 20 starters in war and in here's, most seasons. And here's another concrete example of that. The top leader in war for a reliever last year was Liam Hendricks at 3.8. Great season. Yeah. But the top starter was Garrett Cole at 7.4. Yeah. You know, that's more than double, or just under double, I'm sorry. So it's, it's a big, big difference. And the other thing is that you're not going to see a one-to-one -one correlation here. And that's the reason that Sam said is because war is supposed to be context neutral. It shouldn't matter if you come up in a big spot or a small spot or if you uh, are graced with runners on base or whatever it is. War is just saying, how did you do? What, did, what could you control and how did you control it? Whereas WPA says, all right, the reality is there were runners on when you came up. And what did you do to help your team win this yeah. one game? Yeah, and if you look at the WPA leaderboards from last year, the top three guys are still, you know, three of the four top guys in war, uh, but the ordering's a little different. So Yelich was number one in WPA last year at 7.34, and then Bellinger uh, was a full two wins below that at mm -hmm. 5.41, and then Mike Trout was at 5.17. And again, what I want to stress is that this doesn't mean that WPA is saying that Christian Yelich was a better baseball player than Mike Trout last year. Right. What it's saying was that given the context that they came up in, Christian Yelich's the outcome of Christian Yelich's at bats led to more wins for the Brewers than the outcome of Mike Trout's at bats led to wins for the Angels. But it's not even that, Sam, because for example, if you put 
Barry Bonds, peak Barry Bonds, on a team full of kindergartners. He could accumulate a war of 10 still, but he might have a WPA of 2 because there were just never close games. He was never able to affect the outcome of the game because he constantly had a five-year-old pitching in this weird scenario. Yeah, and I think, you know, Mike Trout is a great example of this in that, like, he's the king of war because he's the best player in baseball. Yep. But he has not been on many good teams. So we've seen this hurt him in things like MVP voting where people, for some reason, don't want to <laughs> vote for an MVP that wasn't on a playoff team. But if you do care about evaluating context in your voting, you should at least use something quantitative like win probability F. Right. Um, and just the last thing to mention here, it's kind of going back to what we were saying, but since this is a cumulative stat and like you can take big jumps, for example, um, I think Sam, what was the, we were talking about this earlier, who is the guy who has accumulated the most WPA in a single game? Yeah, so in a single game, the highest... Uh, WPA was Art Shamsky, who actually had a 1.503 <laughs> WPA in one game. So he literally, sw like, in theory, won one and a half games for his team in a single game. And the craziest part about this is he didn't even start the game. He came in to pinch hit in the bottom of the eighth, hit a home run to tie the game when his team was down. Right. And then in his next two pinch hit appearances, he hit home runs again to tie the game, I think with two outs, when his team was down, to keep the game going. So, like, each time he was adding, like, 50% to his team's win probability, and that's how you get this crazy single game where a guy was worth literally more than a win for his team. And the same thing can happen with relievers, as we said. You know, you can have a guy, because I'm looking at the WPA leaderboard, and Aaron Bummer is third. And I'm saying, how can Aaron Bummer be third in WPA? And I don't know that this is the case in this instance, but just as an example... You could come into a game up by one with the bases loaded, and your win probability then is probably 55% or so. It, with no outs, it's probably closer to 50%. If you K three guys in the eighth inning, you go up to 80%, so you gain 0 0.3. Then if you come out in the ninth and load the bases again, even, even though you're losing some WPA for each of those hits, if you then K to win the game still up by one, you probably still gain 0.8 for that game. So if you just do that a couple times and don't have any big blow-ups and big spots... Well, I don't think anything you do and undo could add to your WPA. Because, like, anything you undo would just be... Like, you would lose the WPA, then just gain it back. Oh, that's true. That's true. That would definitely yeah. be net zero. Yeah. But then again, so yeah, if you... But, but, if you but come still, in, if, you, if you get half a wing in a single game, like... Like, you can't get half a war in a single game. Right, it's exactly. Impossible. That's the point. Like, that, like, you can just see much bigger swings. Exactly. Um, so, again, we're getting into some more niche stats, some stats that require much more understanding, I think, to evaluate properly. It's kind of really easy to just say, war tells you how good a player is, and that's a pretty good summation. Um, WPA is an example of something that I think you really need to understand to evaluate numbers correctly. And hopefully we've done that. Uh, if you guys have questions on this stat or others, if you want to hear us talk about a different stat, please reach out to us at the Alonzo Bet on Twitter or the Alonzo Bet at gmail.com. We love to hear from fans. We love to get new ideas for stat segments or other segments if you guys are curious to hear about something. So with that, we want to go into our third and final segment for the day. As we promised during our season preview, we are striving to keep these episodes under 45 minutes now. 
Um, so in this final segment, what we want to do is follow MLB.com's lead. They have this super fun segment up right now called Which of the Five Tool Supermen is the Best? They put together um, a bunch of different players to reach each of the five tools. And for those of you who don't know, the five tools are hit, the hit tool, power, pretty self-explanatory, running, fielding, and throwing. That's what makes a perfect MLB player, theoretically. And this all kind of comes from old school scouting, uh, the ways to evaluate players. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think if you're sort of have heard scouting terms in baseball, but don't really know what, you, what they mean, in general, you're, you'll hear a tool scouted on something called the 20 to 80 scale. And you might see, oh, this guy is a 70 grade arm and say, what the hell does that mean? So mm -hmm. before we go into the uh, who we choose for each tool, let's just go through the way tools are talked about. And what this 20 to 80 scale does is it's actually pretty easy to understand once you know what it means. A 50 grade means you have an average tool. So if you're a 50 hit tool, you'd be like an average hitter in the league. And then every 10 points basically says you're uh, a standard deviation above or below average. So a 60 would be a standard deviation above average, 72 standard deviations, and 83 standard deviations. And for those of you who are saying, what, what, what do I mean by a standard deviation? It basically talks about the variance in a data set. So normally, uh, like you might expect skill to be distributed in something called a normal distribution. So a 60-grade player someone one standard deviation above average would be better than 84% of the league at that skill. If you had a 70 grade, you'd be better than 98% of the league at that skill. So you're really a league at that skill. And if you had an 80 grade, then we're literally talking about a one in a thousand talent at that skill. So you're literally the best in, in mm -hmm. the entire majors at that, at that skill. And then similarly, you know, the 40, 30, and 20, that's just the bad side. And so with that in mind... We kind of use statistics over the last couple years, uh, scouting grades for some of these players, and just our own feelings and intuitions to make who we believe would be the best player combining an individual skill from five different players around the league. Um, this is, again, the same format that MLB.com did, so you can check out what the experts think, but I think ours are far more fun. What do you mean that we're not experts? <laughs> the other experts. <laughs> Um, so again, just a reminder, we're going to talk about hit, power, run, and, uh, fielding and arm. And you I do, do it in that order. Yeah, let's do it in that order. And so hits the first one. And I just want to make a quick note here. Hit is kind of a, it's the most arbitrary or, uh, poorly defined of these five categories. I think that you can take hit a lot of ways. You can take it as just straight back to ball skills who has the ability to put a bat on the ball most of the time. I think that's maybe the most common. Um, I'll say that I took it a little differently. Um, I took hit to mean more like who at the plate is the best hitter. Not pa not really considering power because power is a separate category, yeah. but who can get the bat on the ball but also control the strike zone so that they're making good contact, not just putting the bat on the ball. I, I took it somewhat similarly to that, but I will say something interesting that just – like, although hit is probably the hardest tool to define, it's also probably the most important tool. Yeah. Like, if you could choose being a 70 or 80 grade player in one tool, you'd choose hit. Right. Like, 
A 70 or 80 grade hitter is always going to be an all-star level player, while as there are plenty 70 grade runners that are barely major league level players. Well, and even power bats now. With yeah. The way that the league's gone, you can have a 70 grade power bat who is like, a middling major leaguer because, yeah, maybe he hit 25 or 30 bombs, but so did everyone else in the league, and he hit 220. Yeah. Right? Chris Davis probably graded out a couple years ago as a 65 or 70 grade power, and he was just god-awful. So with that in mind, let's start with hit. Sam, who do you have? So I went with uh, Michael Brantley. Oh, that's a good one. And what I, what I wanted out of my hitter is a guy, like you said, who can make contact really anytime he swings. So a guy that really has insane bat-to-ball skills. But I also wanted someone who sort of understood the strike zone. So they swing mostly at pitches in the strike zone, and they make contact. They make good contact on pitches in the strike zone and out of it, not just a guy who's just flailing at pitches, basically. Mm -hmm. And Michael Brantley, I you know I went on, uh, on Fangraphs and looked at some stats, over the last three years, he's first in the league in zone contact percentage at 96.2%. So that means on swings, on balls at the zone, he makes contact at a higher rate than anyone else. He's fourth in the league at out-of-zone contact percentage. But what's really impressive is in having this amazing contact per percentage, it's not like he's sort of always like in the, in the sort of thought processes like, I'm swinging at everything, I got to get my bat on the ball. He also had a below average chase rate. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is he swung at pitches out of the zone at a lower rate than average in the major leagues. So he has this incredible ability to get his bat on the ball, whether it's in the zone or out of it, but he's not expanding the zone or sort of giving up the his at-bat to do that. Exactly. And that's why I chose Michael Brennan. And that's a really good pick. So who I chose uh, was Juan Soto. That's a great pick, too. Um, because, yeah, Juan Soto, he's only been in the league two years, whatever. And he's never had more than 153 hits. His batting average is always around 290-ish. And so that may not strike you as a guy who has a premier hit tool. But watch Juan Soto at the plate. Juan Soto controls the zone. He only swings at pitches he wants to. And when he swings at pitches, he doesn't just put the bat on the ball. He puts the bat on the ball with authority, and that doesn't mean he has light tower power. It means that he is more likely to rope a hit or rope an extra base hit when he's putting the bat on the ball, and he's still doing so at an absolutely elite level. So shout out to guys like Michael Brantley, like Whit Merrifield, um, you know, even like DJ LeMahieu, who fit uh, this hit tool kind of in a more traditional way and who are, <coughs> excuse me, incredible hitters. Wow, I got so excited about those three guys who are just incredible hitters. But I think if I'm taking a guy with a hit tool, I want to see Juan Soto at the plate. And, and I think you make an interesting point that like having a good hit tool doesn't mean you have to then have a bad power tool uh, as a, as another part of it. Exactly. Like they're, they're not mutually exclusive. So, you know, in choosing a good hit tool, like this guy could also have pretty good pop like Juan Soto. Uh, but with that, let's go to the power tool. Who did you have for that? For power, I have John Carlo. You know, sometimes yeah, I mean, we that's, forget. That's just the stock answer right there. Sometimes we forget, but this guy's an absolute animal. Every year you look at these, like, hard-hit leaderboards, and the top two or three are John Carlo, and then two or three miles an hour lower is the rest of the league. John Carlo hit basically a ground ball last year at 120 miles an hour. Like, this guy is just... An absolute monster. He's so big. When he plays a full season, he's going to mash a zillion homers. 
And at the end of the day, I'm just not sure anybody can hit a baseball further. Yeah, yeah I think John Carlos Stanton is, is a great answer there. And, and I think there are a lot of good answers for power. I mean, I think, you know, Pete Alonzo, yeah. Aaron Judge. Uh, you might put Gary Sanchez up there. Well, I actually had my honorable mention was Jorge Soler. There's a guy who's yeah, that, absolutely that's masterful. another guy, Miguel Sano. Joey Gallo. Yeah. And Joey Gallo is my pick. Oh, okay. okay. So, so we go down the go down the list. So again, like I, you could choose any of those guys, and I think it would be a good choice. But I went with Joey Gallo, and like the guy just oozes power. And what I mean by that is he literally strikes out thirty eight percent of the time. Like he has the opposite of a hit tool. Yeah. He can't get his bat on the <laughs> yeah. ball. But, he's got a whiff tool, yeah. is what he's got. But when he connects with the ball, it's just. It's it's a home run a lot of the time. It's electric. And, it's absolutely and, electric. You know, a, a good stat to show that is last year. I mean, he ended up getting hurt, but it was in the middle of a breakout season for him. And I think part of the reason for that is he was number one in the league in barrels per batted ball event. And what a barrel is is basically a stat developed by Statcast that says if your hit has an expected batting average over five hundred and expected uh, slugging percentage over one point five. And normally what this is is, you know, something hit 98 miles per hour or harder in the air. The types of hits... Right, like, with a launch angle between, like, yeah. 25 and 35 degrees or yeah, something. Yeah, something that can turn into a home run, usually. Uh, and Joey Gallo, when he makes contact with the ball, with the ball, is doing that far more often than anyone else. Now, he's not doing it, period, more often than anyone else because right. he doesn't make contact with the ball that much. <laughs> but... We're building the perfect player. We've got Michael Brantley, a guy who knows what type of pitches to attack. Exactly. Can always get his bat on the ball, whether it's in the zone or out of it. He's gonna, But he's not fishing out of it. He's going to wait for pitches to punish in the zone. And then suddenly, after Brantley swings, we've got Gallo's power just lopping the ball. I mean, could, we could be looking at 100 homers a year. Yeah, that's actually <laughs> a really, really nasty combination. Because the other thing about both Soto and Brantley are that they really know how to hit every pitch. So a guy like Gallo, um, and even a guy like John Carlos, sometimes there's ways to pitch them. Pitchers know, you know. I think Gallo, um, you can run some cutting fastballs from a righty high and tight on him. You can bury sliders outside of the zone and back foot him, and he's going to hurt on all three of those. Um, but you know who's not is Soto. Really, he does suffer a bit from the back foot, but not so much. Brantley doesn't really have a weakness in the zone like that. Um, and so when you combine these. All of a sudden, you have an absolutely nasty hitter. But then, they're not always going to go over the fence. Even with Giancarlo or uh, Joey Gallo power. And so that's where we want to bring in the run tool. We want to bring in somebody who not only is blazing fast, but you want him to know how to run the bases, right? This is not just pure speed. We're talking about a running tool. So this goes into a little bit of defense, but primarily offense. How can he run? How fast is he? Where is he going to go? Um, and for me, I had to take Malik Smith. That's a good choice. This was a guy who just swiped a gazillion bags last year. He has 97th percentile sprint speed, which certainly there's faster guys in the league, but that's really fast. That's almost an imperceptible difference. And he was third in base running runs last year with 8.5 runs. So the two guys ahead of him didn't even have um, as good speed ability as he did. So you want to combine that. Who were the two guys ahead of him? Um, the two guys ahead of him, I believe, were Mookie Betts, if I remember correctly. And uh, like Cody Bellinger, I'll tell you right now, actually. I'm sorry. 
It was Jonathan VR was uh, the that, only that player. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, Jonathan VR was the only player above him. Malik Smith was number two, but he was tied with Christian Yelich. Ah, so, I see. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, and I I, I consider Jonathan is, VR, and that's an underrated part of Yelich's game. Right, he's so fast. Yeah. Jonathan VR, for those of you uh, who haven't been keeping up with him, he's only in the 76th percentile of sprint speed now. Is that really true? Yeah, so he's like not, he's faster than an average player, but that's not even that impressive. Yeah. Um, as uh, compared to a guy like Malik Smith, who's just going to blast him in a 60 yard. Um, so that's for me. I think if you combine those three guys, you have a guy who's making contact all the time with a bunch of authority and the capability to punish the ball. And when he doesn't, He's sprinting around the bases, cutting triples. Yeah, and, and the guy I picked is, I think, a guy who maybe three years ago would have been the consensus selection, but he's fallen out of the game a bit. But I went with Billy Hamilton. The, yeah. Th- this is a guy who, yeah. you know, came into the league known for, like, he stole 100 bases in the minors. Like, this is a guy who is just, like, his entire baseball persona is speed. Speed running and he's a guy who's consistently been at 30 feet per second max sprint speed throughout his career and that's you know a stat cast stat where that's like sort of an elite threshold he did in this past year drop to like 20th in average sprint speed so he may be losing a little bit of like max sprint speed but we're talking about a guy who not only has the speed but it's just a proven track record of using it on the base paths using it as a defender i mean we're talking about a guy who in the last five years if you sum over the last five years, is number one in base running runs. Mm-hmm. The stat you talked about saving fifty, you know, fifty runs above average on the base on the bases, literally worth five wins on the bases just from his ability to steal bases, take the extra base, and then he's also showing it in the field with his speed. You know, top ten in UZR and DRS over the past five years, including and and in twenty sixteen he was actually first in outs above average. Right. So this is a guy who not only has the elite sprint speed but has a proven track record of applying that as a baseball player, both on the base paths and in the field. And to your point, Sam, this is a guy who's never had a WRC plus above 100 in any of his seasons, but he's stuck around for six seasons, and he has positive war in each one of his seasons because his base running is consistently worth so, so much. Yeah, but this is a great example, too, of why not all tools are created equally, because... Billy Hamilton is, you know, a once-in-a-generation base-running talent, right. but he's been a fringe major leaguer for years. So, like, again, like, these hit tools, these these power tools, they're more important than, than some of these other right. tools. It's not to say all tools are created equally. So now we're going to turn it around and we're going to go into the field. This next tool is just fielding. It's just who picks the ball up the best, basically. Um, and this, again, can be taken a lot of ways because it's hard to compare an outfielder to an infielder to a yeah. catcher to a pitcher even. Um, but for me, I just have a guy who I love and we've talked about on the show before, and that's Matt Chapman. Yeah, that's a great pick. I mean, he's you know arguably the best defensive third baseman mm-hmm. in the league and a guy who is a star in the game but gets his value from defense a lot. Who did you have? I had a, you know another guy we've talked about when we talked about defensive stats, Angelton Simmons, like arguably the best fielder of the last decade, you know, we talked about when we did UCR and DRS, he was the top fielder by both those stats of the last decade. He's got all the highlights, highlight plays to show. Yep. You know, some other good choices, like in today's game, probably would have been like Kevin Kiermeyer mm-hmm. in the outfield. Victor Robles. Victor Robles, that's another good one. Uh, you know, 
these good outfielders, so we both picked infielders. But even uh, even some other shortstops, like I think you know Paul DeYoung has proven himself very good. Nick Ahmed has proven himself very good. Nolan Arenado. Um, but it is something that uh, outfielders do excel at. Um, and this arm is our last category here, and that's another one that outfielders really excel at. Uh, did you take an outfielder for arm? I did, and I went with actually a guy who I think might be a surprising choice, but when I took a look at the stats, I thought he was the guy to go with, and that's Mookie Betts. Yeah, absolute yeah. cannon. Mookie Betts has an absolute cannon, but he, but his arm's maybe not the first thing you think about when mm-hmm. you think about him as a player, because he can go snag it in the outfield, but a lot of his defensive value does come from his arm, his ability to throw people out, and arm, again, is not just who can throw it the fastest from the outfield, but like, can you be accurate with your throws? Can you deter people from taking an extra base? And that's what the arm part of UZR measures, and if you look since 2016, uh, Mookie Betts is number one in value save defensively with his arm, and he's actually a full eight and a half runs over number two, who's another Red Sox outfielder in Jackie Bradley Jr. Yeah, and I think that it's Sam makes a really good point here. Mookie Betts doesn't have the Ramon Laureano type throws where you're just like, oh my god, he just didn't even crow hop like back foot through somebody out from the wall at home plate. Yeah. But what he does have is just pinpoint. Whereas Ramon Laureano will sail plenty of throws. They'll go into the stands. They'll go over the third baseman's head, whatever it is. Mookie Betts has pinpoint accuracy with a very good arm still, and that's a great combo. And another Laureano sort of comp is like Cespedes when he Yeah, when he was really good, yeah. Um, So for me, I wanted to take this a slightly different direction because I think this gets too skewed to outfielders sometimes, and reasonably so since they have the strongest arms on the field probably. But a guy I took is JT Realmuto, and he's a catcher. Oh, that's a good choice. So it's a little harder to quantify, maybe, because the stats don't pick up the same. But for a catcher, what you're looking at in an arm is you're looking at a number called pop time. And that's the time from when the ball hits the catcher's glove to when it hits the middle infielder's glove. And nobody's better than JT Realmuto. So it's not just that his arm is super hard, throwing an average of about 90 miles an hour over his career from behind the dish, often much harder. It's that he can get the ball and get rid of it so, so quickly. And if you put that type of skill with the solid arm strength and pinpoint accuracy that he has in an outfielder, my feeling is it would be really, really valuable because you think about bang-bang plays and you think about uh, outfielders trying to throw guys out. Sure, you get times where you catch a guy dead to rights, but mostly that's a base running error. And a lot of guys would have gotten him with an accurate throw. Most of the time when you're looking at big throws, you're looking at really tight plays and the ability to get the ball and get rid of it quickly would be a huge addition if I'm making the perfect player in the MLB right now. And so for that reason, I went a little different route. I took JT Realmuto here, an absolute stud. I think that's a really uh, interesting way to view the problem. That's a good choice. So with that, uh, let's just review one more time who our uh, quote-unquote Superman of baseball are right now. Um, I have a guy who hits the ball like Juan Soto with the power of John Carlo, the speed and running skills of Malik Smith, the ability to pick it like Matt Chapman, and an absolute quick-release cannon like JT Realmuto. Yeah, so I went with a guy who can hit like Michael Brantley, control the zone when he makes contact, just hit absolute taggers like Joey Gallo, has got Billy Hamilton's ability to use his elite speed on the base pass in the field, can pick it like Angleton Simmons, and then just has an accurate, deterrent, 
cannon of an arm like Mookie Betts, and that's my ultimate baseball player. And interesting that neither of us picked the actual best player in the in the world in Mike Trout for any of our tools. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he definitely could you, be you picked for argue, like three of them. Yeah, but... you could argue for hitting power for sure. Yeah. Uh, well, all right. Thanks for stopping by, guys. This has been a really fun episode. We're coming to you next week with more fun stuff, uh, potentially even another great interview for you. So please stay tuned. Subscribe to us on your podcasting service of choice. If we're not on it yet, shoot us a message and follow us at the Alonzo Bet on Twitter or the Alonzo Bet at gmail.com. We're available anytime. So thanks so much. Signing off. I'm Aaron. I'm Sam. And that's all, folks. Thank you.